And that's a lot of debt. And, and so when you think about trillions of dollars, think about this. If you paid back a dollar a second for on the debt, a dollar a second, it would cost 31,710 years to pay back a trillion dollars. So 250 trillion is a lot of money. Hey everyone, welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I'm really excited to share today's guest with you, Jeff Booth. Jeff is a seasoned entrepreneur, having built his company, Build Direct, from nothing to a market cap over $500 million. He's also the author of a book called The Price of Tomorrow that I devoured and very clearly lays out the implications of the deflationary nature of technology. Basically, technology makes everything cheaper, and that has a ton of implications. In this conversation, we talk first about Jeff's entrepreneurial career, then about the macro economy, and then we bring it back to you and what you can do to weather this storm and hopefully thrive. I found Jeff's framework really helpful. I hope that you will as well. Here is my conversation with Jeff Booth. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Jeff, thanks for coming to the podcast, man. I'm really excited to be talking with you. No problem, Aaron. Looking forward to this. It is really cool to me to have the opportunity to speak with an entrepreneur who's not you know, months into a business and just trying to get it off the ground, not years into it where it's kind of still on like training wheels, trying to pick up momentum, but you've seen maybe not the complete life cycle of a business, but you've seen something from, from a Genesis point, from an idea all the way to like real scale, real maturity, and, and frankly, multiple chapters where you kind of had to reinvent uh, the business that you were operating. So I actually wanted to start there with Build Direct uh, at the beginning. And, and can you just talk a little bit about the initial idea for the company that you co-founded and what that eventually grew into? Sure. The initial, initial idea for Build Direct was out of a building company I had. And, and I failed to deliver the house on time. And probably anybody thinking about the building se- sector, that's pretty normal occurrence, right? And, and, and so I had to put the, a family up in a hotel, furniture and storage, because I failed to deliver the house on time. And I was, I was pissed. They were mad at me. I was mad at what caused this. It, I realized how broken a mess the building industry was. I said, uh, I'm going to fix this and create a, a technology solution to be able to solve all the complexity of why materials never arrive on time, people who have no choice in the matter of what they get. And so that started uh, that started a journey of Build Direct. And, I, and quite honestly, when I started it, just like most entrepreneurs, I had no idea what I was up for. I had no, like, the, my belief in myself to be able to do it was here. My ability was here. <laughs> it was through the floor. And so... I just knew it was a problem that needed to be solved. So I went and said I was going to solve it. And that was 99 in the middle of the dot-com boom. So like that, that seemed like a pretty frothy time from what I've heard. I don't necessarily remember, but was it, what was it like? Yeah. So, so you could have raised money on it. In fact, my co-founder at the time, who was one of my best friends and a roommate, said, let's start an internet company. And I laughed at him and I said, most of these are going to be bankrupt because they don't provide any value. 
and and then there, so he probably put the idea in my mind about starting something uh, e-commerce related or, or technology related. And then a couple of weeks later, it was this event that I'm talking about that just realized I'm going to put those together. And, and so we started the company together and it was a frothy time. And, and so it, at that time, you could have raised any money on a napkin. It was uh, yeah, uh, late 1999 and you could, and we instead didn't do that. We instead raised money from family and friends and, and we did the opposite of what the market was doing at the time. We said to, to those family and friends, you're most likely going to lose all your money that this, this is going to be really hard and don't invest in us because you think we're a com. invest in us because you think there's a chance to actually create the uh, create some value here so fortunately a lot of really good uh, friends family um, and at that time we raised five hundred thousand to start the business we'd already proved the proved the concept before that but uh but to really get after the business we raised five hundred thousand um in about uh, four months later, we raised an additional million. And what were you building with? What, what were you building first with those resources? So when you think about how the, when when you realized how building how how the supply chain worked for building supplies that that caused all of that problem, you realized that that there were a bunch of middlemen in between, believing what they thought would sell into the market. And, say, and, and, and refining that choice because it costs a lot to deliver stuff from, say, overseas all the way through. And they had to make bets on that inventory. And then they would be wrong or right based on demand. And you'd have outages or not, not the right product in stock and everything else. So the complexity that solved the problem, how long the supply chain to solve the problem created the pain. And so we had to break that complexity. So, so we started um, by, it was almost... Looking back, it was the first iteration of this was almost like a Costco of building materials. Our value proposition was as simple as this, and this might be helpful for other entrepreneurs. To set up something that's differentiated from every, everyone else, you have to go where no one else is going. And so in a big idea like this, we had to separate. And so what we thought of as almost like a Costco of building materials where we could increase the order size a lot instead of sell small order sizes. And by increasing the order size, and at that time order size, we increased to container size. So instead of buying a thousand square feet of flooring, you'd have to buy 25,000 square feet of flooring. And, you, and, and so what we did is you also had to pay in advance instead of getting terms and everything else. And then what we could do with that model at Costco building supplies is we could use essentially just a night time inventory or rolling or floating inventory. And we could pre-produce what people were buying and deliver it to them uh, 90 days later. So you can imagine. And, and so then the dot-com market happened, everything collapsed. And we had a business where we, we were saying, trust us, we will deliver this great product to you in three months and it'll be everything you think and wire us the money before you get it, which, which sounds insane, but the price was literally one-tenth of what they could get anywhere else. So some people, wow. uh, so, so again, and because quality is learned after you do a transaction, we always were really high quality, but, but 
people were buying because of price. And essentially what they did is they discounted everything else, customer service, quality, everything else. And it started the kind of feedback loop. But when it was delivered, they realized, wow, this is high quality, customer service, everything else. And they told more people. So our business went from after a whole bunch of ups and downs and everything else and building the technology, our business went from zero sort of fourteen thousand dollars in the first month in January two thousand and one, when the technology was built, it was fourteen one sale to a million dollars by the end of the year, to fourteen million the following year, to twenty-eight million the following year, to and and because we were paid in advance for all of the, our products, we didn't uh, uh, we didn't need money. We didn't need to raise more money. It was it was printing money and it was growing really fast. So it was a really exciting business. That was that would that was phase one of the business. And that actually kind of reminds me of Stitch Fix in the way that Katrina Lake she struggled to to raise financing, but it was almost out of necessity. She was like, "Give me twenty bucks before I even send you the clothes for your uh, different like uh, apparel recommendations that she sends directly to people." People were like, "Oh my gosh, that's so brilliant!" I was like, "No." necessary for me to keep the business functioning. So it sounds like the the lack of funding that you took on was also disciplining you to build that kind of more sustainable business model for yourselves. We designed a business model to to focus on one thing and, and at the expense of everything else, right? The expense of, so what people will, will a lot of times do is they'll try to be average at everything and they won't stand out of the pack for anything. So if you think about providing terms as an example or smaller lot sizes or anything else, anything else, all of those things cost more and you have to average the average that cost across everyone else. So it creates a, it, it created a way to differentiate the, the company, not because of capital. It was a way to differentiate the company that, that created the, the value that then kept on growing. That kept on growing up till 2008 and it grew really fast up to 2008. And then, you can imagine in 2008, the, the credit crisis, our business turned off because now nobody had credit and our entire thing was based on credit. So we had a 50 odd million dollar business um, that went to $18 million like that. But remember in that, we still owe the uh, 50, we didn't owe 50 million, but we owed a bunch of that. And now we're 18 million. So remember in 2008, what happened and they, all the businesses collapsed and everything else. And there was an insight at that time in the business that, uh, um, and so it was $18 million for two years and it should have been done. It should have been over and, and the business should have collapsed at that point. We had suppliers we couldn't pay everything for, nobody, very few people buying anymore or and it was, it was essentially over. And there was an insight out of the data that I had um, that, that I realized most people realize pricing because, uh, because uh, the product has the price embedded. So just about everything you ha see on the store in front of you has, has shipping price embedded in the price. Amazon gives free shipping. And so you buy based on, a, on that setup. But when I looked in our data, because of the way we constructed that, you had a product database and you had a shipping database that were two different things. So what that meant is you could see the demand for every single product. And by the shipping amount, you could see where the, the, where the product should be. And it was, and those two, those two data points 
were different. They were totally different. So, so a lot of people will say, I'm going to move all of this product into my store or location. And then I'm going to give free shipping to people that are really far away. And what do they have to do by giving free shipping to people that are really far away? They have, to, incre- they have to increase the price of the product for the people that are close by. And so that seemed, it seems intuitive when you think, think about it, but when you see the data, especially on heavyweight products like building supplies, it went, it was, ah, it was this magic. <laughs> um, and, and we could see as a byproduct of that, we could see the real demand data all the time and where every product should be all the time to be able to optimize its best, uh, its best location. So we took that data and this is, remember, this is in the, height of the collapse and and i failure didn't mention i sold my house at that time because i believed in this data so w- w- my wife and i went all into the company um and family or three kids under four two and one and went all in if it didn't work we were we were done um and went all in because i believed in and i went to one of the suppliers first supplier that i did it was in turkey and i said first bad news we can't pay you um but here i have this really good idea in this data if you move your inventory from turkey and use this and and we open up a warehouse with your inventory in it so you put it there we don't buy it we put it there against this data we believe this data will sell at this rate because this is the, this is the, so we gave them data, they gave us product in return to be able to, so, but imagine a supplier in Turkey or China or anywhere in the world doing that and just giving you product that, that is in your warehouse that they, uh, that they, uh, that, and so, but the data was super compelling and suppliers did that. And then that supplier, they were winning, they were winning and the business went in the next four years from, from 18 million to $120 million. So um, and again, because it was based on essentially consignment inventory or suppliers building into there, it was, it was staggering. We were, so you could reduce the cost again and lower order size, but you could do it without actually, ha- so, uh, so you did it based on the data of the market. Wow. And, and it's also wildly more profitable for you guys once that transition was made. Yeah, everything you reduce. So now lead time uh, instead of three three months and uh, on lead time, you had lead time as long as you could predict that cycle well. You had lead time. You could deliver it the next day, and so everybody won in that cycle, and it and it worked really well. The problem in that cycle is well, it was growing really fast. If I say what the business should have done against the data versus what it did do in the data. That last year, it went from 80 million to 120 million, but the 80 million should have been about 350 million instead of 120 million. What happened is when you have human beings predicting the data or, or taking the data and then giving to other human beings, it's moving too fast. So you can't keep up. So, so I'll give you an example. Let's say a certain SKU, a certain product SKU had a kind of a, I call it a digital identity. And in that digital identity, it had price, quality, everything else, and 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 locations. So you could predict that, that digital identity. And then you gave that scenario to a supplier, and they were predict, and they were bringing 
hundreds of containers and storing them where you told them to in different locations. And then the next day or three days later, uh, the feedback went from five out of five to three out of five. It changes the whole demand forecast. And human beings are really bad at picking up those changes on both sides, on the positive changes for the sellers and the negative changes for the sellers. So, so we had to reinvent the business again to be able to put essentially artificial intelligence in the middle to be able to pick up the changes so that you, uh, that you can scale with the business. And so the, not the end point, but the, the transition here is if you, if you were to restate that, summarize that 20 ish year arc, you went from being the home builder yourself, which is primarily throwing, you know, human efforts and, and kind of different plans against this problem to creating the kind of most basic of digital catalogs to slightly more data informed networks uh, of distribution to AI powered, highly, you know, data informed choices here. And, and that framework that you've lived as an entrepreneur is a pattern that you see being applied to every single industry. Like there's, there's no industry that is, uh, going to elude such a transition yeah it's every industry is going through that and what i should say for your audience too is is i three years ago i left build uh because the transition to get to the next stitch that that ai we actually made it and you could see and it was hard to make it because you you go through these cycles in business any of the people that are entrepreneurs and you're uh, they're listening know what it feels like oh my god i'm going to lose everything and then then on the other side wow it's everything's working out so there's really highs and lows in that whole process but at the end i actually put debt into the business to be able to make it through the next wave the ai powered wave and just on the and and remember we had sold our house we'd gone through so we were all, all all in and so but the debt in the business when we made it, wouldn't let us out of the debt because they wanted the company. And so I walked away literally with zero in the company I found, uh, founded and the company collapsed uh, as, as a result of kind of what, what ended up happening out of 17 years in a business with zero with no ability to pay the rent on the house that I was renting and, and no ability to ca- capture. So, so how ugly that could look, you can imagine coming home to your wife and saying, because in, in that case, what would debt do in the beginning? What would do well, that? Obviously debt would come into you and say, Hey, why don't we do this together? I'll give you more of the company for me that giving me more of the company and doing it with the debt meant riding over all of the people that I had had invested into the company that were also friends and everything else. So I, I would have to make a, a personal decision at the sacrifice of a whole bunch of th- people that uh, uh, did that. And I couldn't live with that. So, so I, I said, my integrity is not for sale for any price and walked away from the company. I, 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 I started and then, then they did a restructure to try to, to, and they wiped everybody out. So it did, doesn't look like the same thing of anything else, but, but that whole experience walk, walk come into your, uh, <laughs> come, come home and have that conversation with, uh, and, and, and so, it, it, uh, and 
And what I would say, so you talked about the whole arc of everything you go through there. What I realized is all the learning is still there. All the network of people is still there, all of everything else. So how fast you could build wealth again. How so I had a company that started 18 months ago. It started two years ago. It started sales 18 months ago, zero sales 18 months ago. It's now doing $10 million a month. And so the amount of times that I've seen these patterns and everything else in a whole bunch of different companies and how I can apply that, it's been, it's been so powerful. So, uh, so even though that end, that chapter did not end well, every other chapter and everything else is, is kind of, if you, if you have your integrity and you have, even if you have nothing, but you have all the learning, you can build again really fast. The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co. So I, I want to I take that learning, though. I want to go up to a, kind of a macro view, and then I want to come back down to the micro. So the basis by which I reached out to you, I wanted to learn about Build Direct, but the, the thing that you might most be known for is your book, The Price of Tomorrow. And it's really centered on this idea of deflation, which if you're not into economics, if you're not into finance, it's probably not necessarily a word that you think of that often, but really it's outlined by the story of Build Direct, which is that you were able to provide that service for one-tenth the cost and the experience of it was equal to, if not better, for the end customer, which is what technology does consistently. It consistently, you know, the, the fact that I can order, I ordered the book on Amazon and it got there like the next day is, was just not possible 20 years ago uh, when Amazon was just getting started during the dot-com boom. So talk a little bit about how you've taken this framework and, and applied it to the macro economy. Okay. So again, Build Direct is a kind of a company that I led and I was a co-founder of, but that got me into the, into the boardrooms of, uh, uh, and, and, and you can imagine what was happening all around me and all my friends and everything else. And so, so you're sitting, I'm, I'm at Google zeitgeist each year with kind of the top 500 minds in technology every year and spending tons of time with them and from all the companies. Your, your Ubers, your Googles, Amazons, everything else. I know a lot of the players and spent a lot of time with the players. So you understand the pattern and you, uh, you, you see what's happening. And, and what, what I realized, and, uh, and I'd been talking about for 10 years, I'd never wanted to write a book on it, but, but I kept on asking, if technology is this deflationary, if it's providing this much efficiency, and that efficiency is deflationary. And we can see it all around us. If you look at your phone, your phone today versus 20 years ago, look at what's on your phone, all the apps, and how much do you pay for them? You can see the tremendous abundance that you get and the cost keeps coming down and down. It, in 2015, there's an article uh, about self-driving cars that says they'll never scale because LiDAR costs $75,000 per car. LiDAR is on the, the new iPhone 12 and, and the bill of materials on the iPhone 12 for LiDAR cost $5. That's how they do it. So when you think about how staggering these things are and they're all around us, you would naturally think 
prices should be coming down everywhere, everywhere in everything, not just technology. Technology is moving into a base layer, layer of everything we do with AI. You'd think it, prices should be coming down everywhere. And I was puzzled that nobody was talking about that. And so I investigated, I looked deeper. I did what an entrepreneur does like, okay, this is scratching me. <laughs> um, I need to find out more. And so I looked deeper and then I realized, okay, there's 200, uh, $250 trillion of global debt in the world to run an $80 trillion global economy. And that's a lot of debt. And, and so when you think about trillions of dollars, think about this. If you paid back a dollar a second for on the debt, a dollar a second, it would cost 31,710 years to pay back a trillion dollars. So 250 trillion is a lot of money. And, and then think, okay, can we grow our way out of that? Because that's what everybody says. Oh, we'll just grow our way out of it. We'll just grow our way out of it. And, you, and what I realized is if you add more and more debt, you're actually stealing growth from the future because taxes must go up to pay for that debt later on. So you actually have to slow growth. So the more debt that comes into society, the more it actually grows. That's bad enough. But I wanted to look deeper than that. If my thesis was correct that something has changed and technology is, is advancing exponentially, and that exponential technology advancement should be providing abundance and price declines everywhere, then it shouldn't be just the 250. We should notice something more recently that kind of shines a spotlight on that. And that's exactly what you see. You see 185 trillion of the 250 trillion of debt has come in the last 20 years to be able to stop technology, to essentially to be able to stop the price declines that would be natural out of technology progress from reaching society. So you have these two forces competing against each other. You have technology competing against an inflationary monetary policy that we've always lived in. And those two forces competing each other are actually the, the byproduct, the second order effects of those inequality, uprisings, all of it is caused by those two forces competing against each other. And so I said in the, before we got on the recording, um, I didn't want to write a book. I didn't want to, uh, uh, but when I looked out at the path forward on what nobody was talking about, I realized society's going to, this is a really bad thing. It's a bad thing for my kids. It's a bad thing for your generation, Aaron, uh, it, because that process drives inequality further and further. And because nobody understands the process and what's, hap what's happening underneath, they're all talking about second order effects and, 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 and it's, and, and that'll, that'll lead to predictable, really bad predictable outcome. And, and just to hit the, the bell on the accelerating rate of that change, just in another way, it made me think of, I actually hadn't thought of this until you were saying it. Um, uh, venture capitalist, Josh Wolf has this metaphor of the half-life of technological intimacy. So 50 years ago, you'd have a computer in like an entire room. And then 25 years ago, you had it on a desktop. And then 12 years ago, you had it on a laptop. And six years, it's your iPhone. And three years ago, it's your iWatch. And now you've got the it's AirPods in. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's just getting closer and closer. But like really what that's saying is the form factor of how much computational power can be delivered in a smaller lower powered entity is just 
accelerate like that that is legitimately a hockey stick upwards in terms of the rate of change and you know acknowledging like like the the starting point is even just acknowledging this issue that's really what i i see the book as being is like are, are you even seeing what is happening clearly before you can make a prediction about the future like you have to see the present clearly well 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 the answer is quite simply no because it's so hard. And you know, from reading the book, I use an example of a paper folding. And if you fold a piece of paper on itself and you keep folding, you can only fold it seven times. But if you could fold that piece of paper 50 times on itself, that piece of paper would reach the sun. And when I've asked that to tens of thousands of people, nobody gets the answer, nobody. Um, you probably, when you read the book, went on Google and said, is this true? And, and the point the point is, and we laugh at that, and because because I didn't get an answer uh, uh, either, but we laugh of it, but at it, and and then we think because we heard the parlor trick, we're capable of understanding it. That is not my point at all in the book. My point is, if we're really bad at understanding those exponentials, and the evidence is pretty clear, we're really bad at it, then we will always miss how fast things are moving in the future if we have an exponential pattern underlying everything that's coming, everyone will miss it. So, so why did Blockbuster miss Netflix? Because they missed the exponential pattern. What did it cost them? 9,000 stores went out of business. And by the time they did, it was way too late. And all that changed is download speeds changed. Right? And, and it rendered the old business completely obsolete. Why did Kodak miss, miss the digital camera that they, uh, that they uh, invented? Because of, the same, because of the same thing. They couldn't see how the new innovation was congruent with the business model that they created. That same thing in, in every one of us, me too, is what's happening at a policy level. Why would we expect our governments or, or, uh, or Fed or institutions to be any different and miss that? So they miss it exactly the same, but it costs more now because they're playing an old playbook and that old playbook that a whole bunch of the population believes is being broken by technological progress. And what you do a good job of in the book of doing is breaking down when you reach the end. Cause the other side, when you talk about that enormous amount of debt for the entire economy relative to uh, GDP, that's indicative of being at the end of a debt super cycle, which is something that Ray Dalio has talked about and, and plenty of, of macro people have commented on. And I, I kind of want to just, I want to place that idea for people so that if they want to go explore that further, they can. But what I really want to go to, Jeff, is very down to the individual level whether it's an entrepreneur listening to this, whether it's an employee listening to this, listeners will know that Anti-Fragile is one of my favorite books. I love the, the concept that in, in times of disorder, in times of chaos, there are ways that you can carry yourself to seize opportunity as opposed to be exposed to more extreme danger. And in this type of change, there has to be, it, it's clear, you've laid out, there's dangers to you know, being eliminated by automation. The flip side is that there are opportunities. So how, as someone who's, who's helped these businesses so quickly get up to 10 million in revenue, built your own companies yourself, what mental models can you offer to individuals to help seize opportunity in such a seismic change as opposed to kind of being run over by it? So number one, for everybody that's in, uh, listening to this, 
research what I said deeper, pick up the book, not because I need to buy buy my book, because it is super critical for you, your family. It's critical that you understand what's happening. When you understand what's happening, you realize that technology will not be slowed. It's going to keep moving. And, and governments likely, if governments tried to turn off the tap right now, then, or and stop printing, what it would mean is a reset of asset prices by 90% or so around the globe and all bankings would, would collapse, everything would collapse. So with that, they probably won't turn off the taps, but that has different consequences. Now think about when you, when you talked about anti-fragile or than that, if you're all in on one game, you're dead if the other event happens. And the game that most people are playing right now is a manipulated currency game and they're levering up for more and more. My house has to go up and everything else, thinking that because there's been 185 trillion of stimulus over the last 20 years, there's going to be 185 trillion or 300 trillion over the next 20. If that stimulus doesn't keep going more and more and more because technology is going the other way, there's going to be a collapse. So at some point you need to be, and businesses need to be aware of it and everything else, or to hedge your risk against, uh, uh, against that. So that, that's one. In an environment that's moving like this, so once you understand the pattern and you understand what's, what should be happening and what isn't, then you might look, okay, how long could this pattern persist? What could it do? What could, what could, what could hurt me in it? But beyond that, where I spend my time is technology companies that are that actually are, are are using that to bring good to society. And there's, I'm on the boards of ten different companies, and I could, and I'm not going to go into them here here because this isn't about the companies I'm involved in. But I look for opportunities that create massive gains for people, society, out of technology, and so and and where where founders. Uh, that are really great people. And so, so when you spend time on, on some of these industries that are changing and everything else and what's to come next and using technology to make them more efficient, you realize there's tons of opportunity. Specifically, people that are listening, where will there be opportunity? There will be an opportunity in solar. There will be opportunity in healthcare. There will be opportunity in agriculture moving to uh, um, getting far more efficient and localized. There's a whole bunch of giant industries that haven't yet changed that are going to see tremendous change. And you'd probably want to be on the leading edge of those technology companies because the learning rate will be so great for you. So that's the either construct them, um, understand what, what's, there's, t- there's lots of opportunity in gaming. There's lots of opportunity in uh, VR, 3D additive manufacturing. Some of these industries just completely change other industries. And, and there, so there's lots of opportunity, but net net globally, there's not more jobs than there were. That's the that's that that's the problem. So the so if you're fighting an old path and an old industry that is going to be um, dying, you're going to be fighting really hard against the tide. Another thing that kind of jumped out to me when you, you it, between listening to the interviews and reading the book, it's so unarguable the deflationary effects of this technology. And so when I'm thinking about the cost of things going down and the deflation occurring, I'm thinking of like this downward chart. 
and I'm thinking of the, it, it, it pops up on at least for at least my social media feed every, you know, month or two, it's, you know, the differing rates of inflation broken <laughs> out by industry type. And they show like the freaking crazy rate of inflation for medical services and for education. And then they show like, you know, the cost of a TV, you know, you can get a TV 10 times as large for one tenth the price and how that's just been, you know, completely on that downward trajectory. So to me, it also seems like an opportunity if you can identify the competitor that has gotten kind of fat and happy on the, the, the thick margins and not um, recognize that the deflationary prices are coming. That also seems like a place from a competition standpoint where there's just going to be a lot of opportunity because that's where the change is going to be occurring. Is that fair? Yeah. So Aaron, even what you just asked, and I get a lot of people commenting on that chart, Yeah, that chart is measuring the system from the existing system. Imagine okay. that chart with no money printing house pricing would be down. Education would be down everything. And, and TVs and stuff would be way down way more. So all of those numbers that you're looking at are with the inflationary money, printing and printing and printing, and even all the printing in in computers, television, because that's where you're, it can't offset how much those are coming down because it's happening faster. So realize that you're, the thing you're measuring everything is against is the thing that's being manipulated. And it's a really important concept, right? You're measuring all of those things that you're measuring as being, so, so yes, you can't, it's impossible to argue that technology creates efficiency, which creates uh, deflation on an exponential scale. And there's, and, and governments are trying to offset that more, more in your time, ask a bigger question if you want to really see. So, so education is one of those areas that you, you just talked about. And you said how the price of education, there's probably a whole bunch of people listening to this price of education so high. When I went to school, you could go to the highest price school that cost probably 10 times cheaper than it does now. um, And you could be guaranteed a higher wage job out of it because you went to that school. That is no longer the case. It's just people believe it's still the case. Education is free. It's already free. With an internet connection, you could learn anything you want about anything, and you could get to whoever you want, researchers, PhDs, everything. You could get as deep as you want on any topic with an internet connection. Go use Khan Academy and see what you could do in math and science. Go in coding. with So your time is not free, but education is already free. But we have a concept that we have. The only reason education is the price it is is because of a belief that we'll get a higher paying job when we get out of that education. And that belief is about to get destroyed. I can tell you from hiring thousands of people, I would hire every time this, uh, the, the driven, curious person, uh, 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 person that's constantly curious and, and, and driven, they learn faster and they never stop learning. So learning is important. Curiosity is important. That drive is important. Education, less so, but it's a belief pattern we all have, so it persists for a time. Agreed. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty vociferously uh, again. So, so my uh, business partner, she never went to college. Uh, basically, self-taught in everything, and that was the appeal in terms of our partnership for Piper. Uh, it was just like, man, she, from the age of 18 to 22, I've seen her get like 
hockey stick growth better. And that's who I wanted to be in business with. And, and by the way, that's what, the, if, if I think about the thing that's driven everything for me, both family, business, everything else, it's that learning, right? It's that curiosity, everything. It's a, so um, if, if I had one, one above everything else to, to do, I used to tell my employees, don't just think because you're at a company that's doubling every year in sales that you're learning at that rate. What are you doing personally to learn above that rate? Because in a technology world that's moving as fast as it is, it's almost a requirement. Jeff, you've, you've given me, you've given the audience a lot to think about here. Um, I want to kind of aim towards wrapping up, ask the standard last two questions. But before I do that, is there anything else you were just hoping to convey to the audience today that I didn't give you a chance to? Um, no, probably, pr- probably not. At a, at a, um, at a high level, um, there is are tons of opportunities that are going to break uh, break down. Tons of opportunity. Really excited about this. But on the other side of this, this system that we work in, uh, understand there's also a whole bunch of people, maybe you or maybe somebody else, that's going through a ton of pain because of the system is breaking down. Understand that it doesn't look the same for everybody in a system like this. And so I would say with empathy or, or humility, understand what, it, uh, what somebody else might be going through without kind of this awareness. Amen. For folks that want to kind of continue to find ways to learn from you, what digital coordinates can we provide people? Um, probably Twitter is best, just at Jeff Booth on Twitter. Wonderful. We're going to link that. And uh, uh, Jeff's way too humble, but I'm also going to link to and recommend uh, his book, The Price of Tomorrow, for folks that want to explore these ideas a little bit more deeply. And there's, you know, you reference Anti-Fragile in the book, you reference uh, Big Debt Crises by, by Ray Dalio in there as well. There's plenty of uh, very accessible learning that can, can continue to be done uh, if your, your heart and your mind take you in that direction. Jeff, I, I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing some time with us. Before I let you go, I want to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Um, I, I probably said it already. Yeah, um, uh, empathy. When you see, so so. You know, in, in, a, in a world that's breaking down and going through a structural change, you will believe a whole bunch of the stuff that you've been programmed to believe. You will too, so will somebody else. And you'll, it's easier to hang out with friends who believe the same things. It's easier to be on a community that, in a community that believes the same things as you. Understand that that manipulation or what you believe is driving apart society. And it might not be caused by what you believe at all. It might be caused by something else like this. If that's true, look for yourself, verify it. If if that's true, understand that everybody in society is going through the same thing. And a bunch of the stuff you fight about or think it's those people is not true at all. Um, And so if you can do that, if you can do that, if you get to that point, build bridges so that people understand so more people are aware of what's going on and we can we can actually fix this spot on i love it and uh i i love the challenge i hope everyone will take it and uh jeff thanks for coming on the podcast man it's great Aaron. thanks we just went deep with jeff booth hope everyone out there has a fantastic day Hey, thank you so much for listening to the end of my interview with Jeff. If you enjoyed this and want more 
macroeconomic commentary, then I would encourage you to check out our past conversations with Brent Johnson, where he breaks down the origins of his dollar milkshake theory, and with Anthony Pompliano, where he talks about crypto and its connection to the exploding amounts of debt that the federal government is taking on. This is heady stuff. It's complicated, and it takes a lot to understand. But if you listen to the right communicators, you can hopefully make a little bit more sense of it. That's what we're trying to do here on this show and what we'll continue to do. Hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.